0: And welcome to another edition of the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. Coming to you, I think both of us today are coming from the great Commonwealth of Virginia. We're right across the river from Washington, DC. I'm in Alexandria and our guest today, Anna Quintana from the Heritage Foundation. I think she's also in Virginia, but she may be over a county over in Arlington. So we're we're both in Northern Virginia, right, Anna?
1: Yep, I'm in Arlington, right in Northern Virginia.
0: How, How are you doing today?
1: doing well, doing fantastic. It's
0: well, a great day. Well, uh, Anna, I've known her for many years. Uh, we happen to have gone to the same university, undergrad university in Miami. We're both Miami Miami people, or former Miami people. She is uh, Heritage Foundation's, though, uh, leading policy expert on U.S. policy toward Latin America, and we're going to post a lot about her on the website so you can catch up on her writings, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on her impressive uh, work that she's done. She's um, very widely published and has a Master of Arts degree in Global Affairs uh, from FIU. Uh, she also has various degrees and certificates in national security and has uh, borne, borne in on the region. She loves the Western Hemisphere, as do I, and she also approaches it from a good vantage point for our listeners because as we always do on this podcast and we like to make this relevant uh for people who do not follow this uh region as closely as you and i think uh the mainstream media should so it's going to be an exciting conversation we're going to talk about mexico we're going to talk about cuba venezuela nicaragua and a few other little hot spots in the region and also some bright spots there's a lot of good news down there but um Tell us a little about yourself. I mean, how did you come to this? How did you come to Washington? We both grew up in South Florida. Uh, you know my story, but tell our listeners about how you came up here.
1: Sure. So, so yeah, so Jason, so just like you, you know, I'm also Cuban American and I, you know, when growing up in Miami, you grow up. It's, it's essentially like Northern Cuba, but free, right? <laughs>
0: <exactly like laughs> Havana North. <laughs>
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and where you can freely talk about how, you know, how the Castro regime destroyed the island and why so many people and when you live within the exile community in Miami. And so you just grow up learning that. And I just always had this keen interest in what went wrong in Cuba and then seeing that spread throughout the rest of, of Latin America. and And so in so many places throughout the region, you can just clearly tie back so much of that dangerous ideology and so much of not just the the ideological side, but like the dangerous economic policies, security policies, and so forth, that have, you know, impeded and undermined US interests directly tied back to the Castro regime. And so in school, I just tried to focus my, you know, studies on that. And then later, I interned when I was in Uh, graduate school at USAID here in uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development and from that point on I was hooked. I was like all right I have to come back to D.C. This is what I want to do. I ended up at the Defense Intelligence Agency for a bit after graduation and then I was like all right I want to move into more of the conservative policy world. Heritage had an opening. I just cold applied online and they were looking for somebody to Revamp their Latin America program, and I've been there ever since for the last seven years.
0: You know, what's quite remarkable about your story is that I'm a little older than you, probably much older than you. And um, generationally, though, it's phenomenal that there's a new generation of liberty warrior uh, coming out of of the of the diaspora and growing up in a diaspora. You grew up in different time frame, but it's remarkable how folks that come out of that community uh, still grow up with that and are raised with and surrounded by people Uh, you especially had a different I mean you had many more different cultures down there than I did when I was growing up I mean it was basically Nicaraguans Cubans and our fellow Anglos and, and and growingly toward the end you had people from other parts of the region but now it's pretty much uh, the capital of the Americas, I believe, and you were able to experience that. And how, how, how do you think that shaped you growing up in a diaspora and still being coming out of it as a conservative? Because a lot of the people that have come out of the region, even though they're very liberty focused, uh, they're ideologically maybe a little different from, from what we grew up with.
1: You, you know, that there are some and I would say it's, it's and I would honestly put them a bit more on the outliers that are not so liberty focused, you know, where, where, where I grew up and the kind of more and where I grew up and during the time when I grew up in Miami, that was when you saw the massive exodus of Venezuelans coming to South Florida and the Venezuelans who came obviously left for because they were fleeing Hugo Chavez. And then, you know, later they were they fled Maduro. And I, I think their perspective was this happened in our country. We're scared of this potentially happening in the United States. And and so I, I guess it was it, it just never really you know it, one it reinforced my perspective because we clearly see the direct command control role that the Castro regime is playing inside of Venezuela and just how corrosive that's that's been. And and two it also reinforced those who don't necessarily share that perspective because their countries have never experienced it, right? Their countries have never directly experienced, in their recent memory, a direct communist government taking control and just essentially destroying every every single democratic liberty. Sure, there are corrupt governments in, you know, the Northern Triangle of Central America. There's, you know, a little bit kind of semi-authoritarians in other little places, but there have never, there's never been that level of like ideological just kind of tyranny that exists in Cuba and now in Venezuela. And now we're obviously seeing it in Nicaragua as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this reminds me when you were talking about the Venezuelan influx, The I, I wasn't there for it, even though I knew a lot of Venezuelan, uh, Venezuelan Americans when I was growing up, but not, not that latest wave of folks that have come on over and that have contributed so much and have quickly be assimilated and been part of the, in fact, the liberty fight not just in Venezuela, but other countries. I remember the first time I, and this gets to our first topic, which I had about Mexico. I remember the very first time though, I was exposed to the, the West Coast and I spent time out at UCLA in, when I was in college and we were out there doing a program and interacting with colleagues from Mexico and listening to the stories about how they viewed the, the what I thought were the same struggles that we were having and it was it was very different frankly it was eye-opening uh to see how you know us growing up in diaspora and then engaging with colleagues from mexico you know and and a lot of listeners will not understand this but when you have cuban americans talking about mexico uh when you were growing up everybody would say oh mexico those are fidel castro's pals you know we we don't want to deal with those people They're, they're all always going to be siding with the other with the bad people but when you spend time talking with with colleagues from Mexico, it you, and you understand and you get to understand their history a little bit and their experience and how their democracy took root, and and we're going to talk a, a lot about that right now. Uh, it's it it kind of uh, uh opens up another thread of of conversation that we don't have as much as I think we should back on in in Miami because you don't talk that much about Mexican politics, but you have and you've always followed Mexico closely. What brought you to that issue and why are you so interested in it?
1: You know, and just to to add to what you were just saying, I think that, that, that further underscores this point that we're now, you know, and more of this discussion now as America is talking about identity politics and about, you know, critical race theory and just kind of how awful and corrosive that, you know, that plan is that there really is no such thing as this quote-unquote Latino identity, That's right? right? Every yeah. sort of Every group and every individual who comes from a particular country has their own particular historical experiences, has their own individual identity, has their own kind of even subnational identity. If you come from southern Mexico, you're completely different than from central Mexico than from northern Mexico. And so this idea that the moment that you arrive in the United States, you automatically lose that identity and you become a quote unquote Latino, Hispanic, whatever and you're just supposed to vote upon this by this one particular, you know, set of guidelines that the left has set for you. I I think it's not only just reductive, but it's frankly a bit racist. And I think, you know, this election now looking at Florida numbers, for example, how 47% of the Latino quote unquote Latino community is supporting Trump, it's kind of forcing folks to take a step back and say, hey, maybe we've been analyzing this wrong the entire time. Um, but, but to the point of, of Mexico, I think, you know, the, what brought me to that is Mexico is, uh, I, I, Mexico is essentially, I mean, we share a 2000 mile long border with Mexico. Mexico is now for the last over two years has been our largest trading partner. And I, I think that what's happened is since since the NAFTA negotiations, we've just essentially been like, all right, we have an established trade agreement. We have these occasional agreements when it comes to security cooperation. And so at the national political level, we don't necessarily need to mind or attend the relationship. But in my opinion, I think it's one of the most important relationships for the U.S. government because it's not so much a foreign policy Issue, right? For the border states, this is a domestic policy issue on a day to day basis, right? For border patrol agents, they're interacting with their counterparts on a regular basis. For the agriculture workers and for the agriculture department officials, rather on the border, they're working with their Mexican officials to say, hey, there have now been, you know, X number of diseased cows coming in. From X cut from X city, we need to start. We need to make sure that these are not tainting the herds and the livestock on our side. And it's it's like that on water issues, on so many land management, um, uh, on so many land management sectors. And I think that we sometimes tend to lose sight of that unless something major happens when it comes to either immigration, border security, you know, cartel violence, or whatever. And we shouldn't just let the relationship be defined by by these things are obviously major, but it's everything else as well. These things affect so many Americans who live along the border and it gets completely lost in the conversation.
0: And it reaches even all the way in here to Virginia. And I agree with you. We, there's so much, by the way, it's a beautiful country. And if you all listening, have never been there, you should go. Uh, At least you may have to wait until this pandemic is over, but for those of you who haven't been to Mexico, you should go because it's great people. And, it's, and there's more to Mexico than the Northern Mexico, as Anna was saying, there's a lot to see there. And I haven't seen all of it, but I've seen a big chunk of it. It's a great place to go. Um, on the cartel issue, interesting, up here in Virginia, down in Southern Virginia, a town called Axton, Virginia, a few years ago, a lot of people were, I mean, those of us who follow it, we knew about stuff like this happening, but uh, most Virginians had no idea that the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, one of the new ones on the block, uh, had an operation. And there was a big arrest uh, two years ago down in Roanoke. Uh, uh, they arrested four or five members of the cartel. And I recall that the, the Attorney General uh, made a big announcement uh, redesignating uh, several cartels as transnational criminal organizations. And it, it reaches deep into, you know, right, way beyond the border. So there's a lot of good news. There's a lot of trade happening uh, with, you know, Mexico has a population, I think, of 130 million people. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of back and forth. In fact, now with this pandemic, frankly, I think a lot, of, a lot of good's gonna come of the relationship with the New Mexico Agreement. But some of this transnational crime reaches deep inside the country and even up here in Virginia mm-hmm. and up into the North New England states and what have you. What do you think, you know, if you were to pinpoint, cause you've written a lot about this and we're gonna share some of the links uh, to what you've written uh, about the cartel issue, you, uh, what do you think it's the biggest, what, what do you think we need to do that we're not doing right now, U.S. and Mexico, even Canada, but just between both of these countries? Today there was, as you know, uh, uh, this, the arrest yesterday of, of uh, a former uh, Mexican defense minister, I think down in, um, was it California? Where, where did they yeah. arrest this fellow? Um, in, in Los Angeles, I think. Yeah. And that's pretty remarkable. I mean, it's like saying, you know, what you know, uh, a former American secretary of defense travels somewhere and gets arrested. So it was a pretty big deal. And I'm assuming the Mexican president knows about, knew, knew something about this. Uh, what do you think needs to happen? More of this, more cooperation or something broader?
1: Sure. So I'm going to answer the second one first and then go to the first one. So sure. I think on the Minister of Defense issue, so the, the Sinfuegos arrest is... Is literally like it's 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 a it's, it's an atomic bomb. The a minister of defense in Mexico is essentially like a dual-hatted minister of defense slash vice president, and he was the minister of defense throughout the entire duration of the previous uh, president, right? And during the previous president. This is during the whole, um, you know, cat and mouse game of El Chapo Guzman, right? Where when El Chapo was arrested and then found a way to miraculously tunnel out of prison and nobody found him and then he escaped from prison again, I mean, during that entire uh, debacle. And the entire time, even when he was in prison, the Sinaloa cartel still kept growing and expanding in influence. And this is during the uh, rise and proliferation of the transition from uh, heroin to synthetic opioids. This was all under the Sinaloa cartel and all controlled by El Chapo Guzmán. And so what the Minister of Defense has now been charged with is drug trafficking and money laundering and allegedly working directly with Chapo. So during Chapo's recent uh, recent uh, court hearings in, in New York last year, uh, Sinaloa cartel members even stated that we were giving money to senior Mexican military officials for protection and we were told we were perfectly fine and we were perfectly protected. And that was always the rumor, right? As to why is it that the Peña Nieto government continues to capture high level uh, officials from other cartels, right? From Los Etas, from the Juarez cartel, but never anybody from the Sinaloa cartel. How is it that this one single cartel continues to be protected even though they control the most territory inside of the country? And so I think, this is this is a huge blow to the credibility, frankly, of the Mexican military. The credibility of the previous uh, Mexican president, who, when he left office, about 13 governors affiliated with his party were also arrested or indicted for similar types of corruption, and that's 13 out of 33 governors, rather 32. I'm sorry, and and so this is this is a huge moment of of reckoning, and then to the point of you know, Mexican cartel illicit trafficking, I would say reaches virtually every single point of the United States, right? It's all the drugs that are consumed, whether it's marijuana, whether it's heroin, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's crystal meth, whatever, all has some sort of touch point with Mexican cartel, either production or their distribution networks in in the States. And That is incredible. I mean, we should all be horrified by this, right? We should. We should. And anybody who we know that is actively using drugs, that is money that's funneling and going directly into their pockets. And so, to the point of what is that we should be doing? I mean, there's US Mexico security cooperation is so incredibly outdated, right? So, it's to the point that President Trump was making that, like, it's 2000 and, It's 2017. The United States is operating on a trade agreement that was negotiated in 1994. Conditions have completely changed. And that's essentially what we're doing with security cooperation in Mexico, right? We have fentanyl. We have this massive, you know, the production and the trade is all the, all the precursor chemicals are coming from China. And yet we're still operating as though, you know, we're still operating as though things, the, the situation is like from 10 years ago. And I think If there is a Trump 2.0, I I would hope just because of the goodwill that's been established between both leaders, there needs to be some very serious and mature conversations on saying, look, this is a problem within your country because it's producing unprecedented homicide rates. Look what it's producing within my country. We need to get incredibly serious and muscular here and no more of these little, you know, pathetic little operations like from a few months ago where where some Mexican officials attempted to arrest uh, the sons of El Chapo and then the sons ended up outgunning the Mexican police yeah. and prisoners. I, I mean, it's it's an absolute joke and it's, yeah, no. I mean, I could literally go on and on about this, but, but there is a lot tactically uh, that needs to be done. And,
0: and we will, we're, we're talking to Ana Quintana. We're gonna take our first break. When we come back, we're gonna wrap up with Mexico because Ana said a few things that I'd like to tug at a little bit and kind of put some context uh, for our our listeners, and we'll get into Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. We'll be right back. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free, uh, for starters. There's also an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. We're talking to Ana Quintana uh, from the Heritage Foundation. We were Talking about Mexico and the arrest of a former defense minister, which I, I think that's uh, and it's remarkable. I think that's. I'm just wondering what type of an impact is that going to have? And this is a two pronged question because we're going to get into the rule of law issue now. Um, what type of an impact? I mean, that's, this is going to have an impact on the military. Uh, this is. Uh, I don't think the, the ripple effect from this, as you said, it is. A, it is a, an atomic political uh, bomb that's just happened here uh, and it's going to have a ripple effect and i believe it's going to impact on the military but also the rule of law issue it's something you know i feel strongly about and i believe some of this even trump's economic development because as milton friedman warned us and he said this many 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 years ago that when the when the berlin wall came down one of the recommendations that they were making was hey privatize 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 everything and in that famous speech he gave at another organization here in Washington a few um, a few years after the wall came down, he was saying, "Well, the one thing we should have focused on was not privatization necessarily. It was rule of law, and uh, part of that is if you don't have a system of of, of uh, you know, that's a very comprehensive term, covers a lot. But without without law, you don't have order. It's impossible. And without order, you can't have a, a, a vibrant economy. You know, can't have contract. You can't have property rights." Uh, why, you know, when someone like this gets picked up, it's, it's telegraphing many things. But we're going to focus a little bit, talk a little bit about the military impact, but talk a little bit also about what does it say about the Mexican legal system and their inability, I believe. Uh, I, I don't think they, they could have tried this general there for anything that they're going to try him on here. What does that bode for Mexico? What does Mexico have to do to get their legal system under control?
1: Sure. So I I think that um, in in terms of the impact on the military, it's, this is, this is going to be a bit of a challenge, right? Because uh, the, there probably are still individuals who worked for him who are probably still in the military. So now it's going to be the question of who can trust who, who's going to be suspicious of who, how are you going to, Uh, uncover and figure out who um, was involved in that sort of criminality. And I think so that's going to be a bit of a turbulent process. And then on on the and then another point is, will some members of the military feel like they are being unfairly politically targeted by their current administration because of this? Um, I think that can be a secondary and lesser uh, problem. But I think Mexico is in for like a bit of of trouble sometimes right now in terms of their the military to executive relationship and then in terms of why didn't their legal system uh, try them for this it's probably because the majority of those crimes were committed through the US financial system. So it's probably so the major a lot of that money laundering I mean we still have yet to see the official indictment but if the majority of that money was laundered through the US financial system I mean it just it makes sense that this is, you know, the Mexican government saying, "Okay, DEA, you can take him and you can try him in your courts and you can process this because there is still an a, there is an ongoing case that he's probably affiliated with, and this is what I'm. This is probably where the allegations, um, or rather the investigation, came from. Uh, the Mexico's former minister of public security." Uh, who's currently uh, detained in the United States, uh, and this is probably connected to that to that case. So I think it makes uh, more sense just to keep everything tied and together here through the U.S. government system.
0: That, that's going to be fascinating how how they deal with that because this is. I think it's, it's just a beginning. There are probably going to be other arrests and. Um, it's a good indicator, by the way, to folks who follow the ideologies of both our president and the Mexican president. These men are diametrically opposed ideologically, but uh, they found ways to work together. And it's quite remarkable. They not only put a trade deal together, but uh, there's this sort of, I believe, of behind the scenes cooperation going. And we have to, uh, it's, it's Mexico's a close partner, largest trading partner and ally. And they have a lot of problems on their hand. That country is almost at a 45% poverty level and they have to get a handle on the crime. And and figure out a way to stabilize that so we can have more economic growth. So, jumping off to another topic: uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. In November two thousand eighteen, uh, John Bolton gave a speech in Miami uh, where he talked about the triangle of terror um, uh, involving Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Let's take each one of these three, independent of each other. Uh, focusing, let's start. Let's start with uh, Venezuela. Um, Venezuela has i don't know if it's eluded the administration or it's just been one it's just been a hodgepodge of things happening down there that have been tough to kind of focus a long-term game on you've written a lot about venezuela and again we'll share the some of this with the with some of what you've written so people can dig deeper but where do you think this thing is going we've been imposing sanctions now for many years the russians are still there the chinese are still there the Iranians opened up a supermarket chain there that's allegedly owned by the IRGC. They're shipping tankers of oil, even though they're being addicted now, but they're still reaching Venezuelan shores. They have a, a, Iranian-owned pharmacies. I mean, uh, and the Russians don't see, they're not budging. Uh, they're, they're not going anywhere, nor the Chinese. So what's at stake in Venezuela for those who don't follow this closely, and where do you think it's headed?
1: Okay, so on the Russian front, I'm, I'm not concerned about Russian presence inside of Venezuela at all in the sense of, I think there's some folks who might think that could Russia potentially, could there be a potential U.S.-Russia conflict inside of Venezuela? Russia is a 14-hour flight away from Venezuela. Russia right now is busy fighting a war in, the, in its occupied territories of, within South Georgia, within Syria, and within Ukraine. Russia has an economy that's probably the size of New Jersey. Um, It it does not have the resources nor the assets nor the interest to get involved in a country that is 14, a 14 hour flight away from it. If you just think in terms of how do you move any sort of military assets, it just logically makes no sense. Now could the Russians potentially uh, stir up trouble disinformation wise, cybersecurity wise, Yes, that will be a problem. But what about in, the money?
0: What about the Russian, Russian money? Russian
1: money? What Russian money? The Russians have no money. Russians mm. literally have no money. This is why the Russians sent a private military force of 400 some odd people temporarily. And that was it. It was a PMC. They, they didn't even send official Russian military because they knew that if they sent official Russian military that would draw and elicit a, an official U.S. response. The Russians have no money. I, I'm not concerned about the Russians, the Chinese, I'm far more concerned, just because of what the Chinese are going to exact and demand from Guaido. The Chinese are not ideologically beholden to anybody. They they gave up on Mugabe the moment that Mugabe uh, was was run out of office. The Chinese, though, are, are looking at this in terms of a long term gain. They, they want Russia. They want Venezuela's oil. Right. They want they, they just straight up want these uh, this commodity. And. The problem is that Guaido right now, or whoever is that is takes over in the opposition, is not going to be in a strategically uh, strong position negotiating-wise. And so th- that I think we need to be incredibly concerned about. And the Iranians, look, they're going to open up these little grocery stores, they're going to have these little pharmacies. We have to be incredibly concerned about the potential for them to be used as money laundering or financing fronts. For connected terrorist organizations. Absolutely. I'm more concerned about Iranian presence in the tri-border region of Argentina, Paraguay, and Brazil. That is where I think we, there's just not enough visibility on. And then in terms of like, where is the future of U.S. Venezuela policy? And my perspective is, I don't necessarily think that Trump's, Trump's policy has been a failure, right? Because you finally have, and, and, and honestly, look, before Trump, it was two decades of this anemic policy from the United States where Caracas, where the Venezuelans controlled the dynamics mm. and had the United States playing defense all the time, right? You had Hugo Chavez on TV, essentially sending battalions and tanks to the border of Colombia whenever the heck he would feel like it. And the objective of U.S. policy from three, year, three and a half years ago is we're going to change these dynamics, we're going to protect our interests, we're going to stop the flow of drug trafficking, and in doing so, we're going to leverage this shift to help restore Venezuela's democracy. And now you have international forums like the U.N., which is incredibly broken and dysfunctional, but they're actually talking about Venezuela. You know, you have, you have this purpose and like-mindedness in Latin America, which, Jason, you know we've never seen for Cuba in the sixty-plus no, years, of China, no, in
0: fact, in fact, rid- a lot of dissidents complain about that,
1: and the dissidents should complain about it no. because it's it's completely hypocritical. But in let,
0: Latin- me, let, let let me ask you a question about China, a minute, uh, because before I forget, and China and Iran, uh, China Venezuela, this is, you you make a very good point. Do you think we've let we we've pressured China enough on Venezuela?
1: Have we pressured China? Do you, enough? you do, do
0: you think we should pressure them more? Do you think we should tell China, hey, stop it? You know, enough of this meddling in the region because you're causing, I mean, we, we seem to have, I mean, I, the thing with the, I agree with you, by the way, Trump has reoriented the policy and the, it's a night and day what we were doing. Uh Frankly, even with some Republican presidents. I, of course, as you know, have never been a fan of Juan Guaido. And I think the president's instincts were right when he made the comment that, frankly, I don't think he, he was, a, he's a big fan of him either. I don't know this for a fact. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's, he's uh, a very weak, uh, person and, and has not been able to rally, and I, I even think he's misled, frankly, American policymakers, including our president and members of Congress, and uh, given the amount of support that this country has given the Venezuelan Assembly, uh, at certain level, they seem a little ungrateful, but that's another subject for another day. I agree on that point that they do seem ungrateful. Absolutely agree on that point. Yeah. So with the Chinese and the special, like, you know how the relationship with China is big picture, do you think we need to lever? Do you think we have and should we push more, push harder, or how much can we push? And this is, by the way, there's no right answer here. I'm just curious your thoughts on this thing, because Maduro's not—he's not letting go of this thing, and I don't think he's going to let go of this thing. And he's not—he's not holding on by himself. Um, he's getting support from the outside and a lot of support on the inside. Um, do you think? China needs to be pressured a lot more than maybe they are being pressured on, 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 the, on the hemispheric issue on, on Venezuela, for example.
1: I think if we would have had this conversation in February before the pandemic, it would be different. I would say that the US in terms of priorities could have elevated China's meddling in Venezuela a little bit higher. I think now that you have China that catalyzed this deadly global pandemic and has yet to be held accountable I, I, I don't necessarily uh, think it ranks um, within kind of the top tier of of priorities in terms right. of where we need to be re- wasting uh, our resources, no. Right.
0: Got it. Now, let's jump to Nicaragua and Cuba because we're going to run out of time in this slot. Uh, you said something curious. It's It was kind of code for you and me because we understand it, but a lot of folks out there listening do not. You said that if we had seen this much rallying, on Cuba that we saw in Venezuela that we've never seen that level of U.S. focus on an issue like we have on Venezuela. What does that mean? Unpack that for the listeners of, of what you were saying when you said that.
1: Sure. So so the, the international community for quite some time has essentially accepted this communist military dictatorship in Cuba as the status quo, right? They've just Cuba, I'll give you an example, just the other day, was elected by 170 countries to the UN Human Rights Council. Um, 20-ish years ago, a similar entity at the UN was pushing and pressuring the Cuban government to free political prisoners. Granted, it was, you know, just at the leadership level, um, but Latin America has always shown this affinity For the Castro regime and has always shown this reluctance to address the gross human rights violations that we know have existed in Cuba and that continue to exist right since 1959 we know this is not a cold war era perspective this is happening in modern in in this modern day society that we live in and and so what's what what we need to understand is why is that not translated why is this you know fervor and and sense of purpose that we see for Venezuela not translated towards Cuba.
0: Yeah, I mean you have good example of that you're talking about the UN, you know, Bachelet, who is the uh, you know, head guru there for human rights. Uh, and she almost has a love relationship, love, love fest relationship with uh, you know, Raul Castro and Fidel Castro, even though they kind of changed the tune publicly, but they're all fellow travelers, they're all socialists, and they never ever really said anything bad about Cuba. And all of a sudden, Maduro is the most horrible thing in the world, even though the person they're supporting to replace him through the assembly, Juan Guaido, is a socialist and his party is a member of the international, you know, socialist international. So I find it very curious that these people, I still deep down, they still believe that socialism is possible and, and that no matter what, they're going to make it better. And um, it, it's kind of long term for us, it was something America should keep an eye on because this duality is is perplexing. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, jumping over to Nicaragua, uh, we can't forget about Nicaragua. Uh, where do you see that going? Uh, in two thousand eighteen, a lot of people got killed. Uh, the Trump administration, again, part of their reorientation, has started to impose the Nica Act and sanctions. And uh, that's a very different country from Venezuela and Cuba, of course. Uh, but they also they also seem to be the most the, the grassroots there, the, the opposition, if you will, for a lot, because there really is no organized opposition down there, but there, as far as parties go, where do you see that place going? I mean, do you do you think it's going to break out, violent, we're going to break out again into another 2018 like scenario because people say they want elections, opposition, some opposition groups say, no, we can't have elections with these people in power, Ortega, Murillo, where do you see it going?
1: You know, Nicaragua is where I'm actually, I have more concerns about Russian presence and interference than I do about Venezuela, because if you look at Russia, the Soviet Union, and then Russia's history inside of Nicaragua, it, for them, is just so symbolically important, and it's also the Central American country that geographically is the closest to the United States that has both Pacific and Atlantic access, right? right? So you, you have to consider it from that sense. That's why the Soviet Union made so, such heavy investments during the Cold War to, to turn and to keep Nicaragua on its side. And you then have you know Daniel Ortega, who symbolizes their investments and who symbolizes an affinity to their interests and a perpetuation of their interests, potentially losing power. That just cannot exist. Um, and, and so, I, I think, where is this going to go politically? I, I'm, I'm incredibly concerned that, I, that we could see a resurgence of the violence again. I don't necessarily think it's going to be to the level of what it was in 2018 because I don't think that Ortega was prepared to lose and for the backlash internally from particularly from like influential members of the private sector. And I I don't necessarily think that the private sector was motivated out of righteousness. I think they're just motivated out of evading, uh, you know, the eye of US sanctions. Um, I I do think though that we're in for a very politically unstable time. And I think the only minor bright spot in terms of bipartisanship here is that there is very strong bipartisanship in the United States to address Nicaragua situation. My only concern is that if there is a Biden administration, for example, they are going to go into this a little bit too. Well, we can't take this strong of an approach just because it's a Trump approach and we can't be seen to mirror the Trump perspective in Latin America.
0: Right.
1: And so that that is that's the only thing. And I, I just don't want Nicaragua to lose another few more years. I mean, we have to remember, they has been in power for 40 something odd years, off and on. So so I I don't know. I really, it's it's really a I think Ortega is going to take a signal as to how the U.S. responds to the December six National Assembly elections, yeah. and that will be an indicator for him as to how much leverage and
0: wiggle room he has. And when we come back, it's our last segment, Anna. We we fired through this. Maybe it's our Miami way. I can't. Right. I, can't. I, <laughs> I didn't. I had. It, it's. I could keep going forever and ever, and they're not going to let me though. So I have to start wrapping up. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about why um, the elections and how they're going to impact. I think it's important, especially in these three countries we just talked about, um, there, there could be some significant changes if, if Biden wins. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then finally, why should you care about any of this if you haven't heard about these problems before? We'll be right back. Hello, it's Jason with the Global Liberty Alliance. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Before we wrap up the last segment, I want to just share with you two brief uh, announcements. First, thank you. Thank you for uh, your support, for your questions, for listening, for sending us so many suggestions for guests and for uh, topics. We will continue to read them and please keep them coming. So on behalf of Arthur, Cara, Mariana, Mauricio, Veronica, our network of lawyers and independent uh, you know, civil society leaders in the places we work, thank you for listening and for uh, expressing uh, the enthusiasm for some of the work that they are doing uh, in Latin America and hopefully soon in other places. Second, in order to expand our work, we need your support, so please consider investing. Uh, please consider uh, putting some of your... Uh, sweat equity, if you want, we can put you to work. But we also need your money. We need your support. Consider investing. There's many ways to give. Uh, look and learn more about it at our website at www.globallibertyalliance.org. That's www.globallibertyalliance.org. You can click on the invest button, and you can also check some of the work we're doing. Keep in mind that's just a example of some of the work. Uh, we've done that we continue to do and if you'd like to learn more uh, please contact us let's get back to the show thank you very much and we're back with Anna Quintana from the Heritage Foundation we're both coming to you today from the great commonwealth of virginia although we're not in the same place we are keeping mega social distancing uh even though um uh, we're in the same state so anna let's talk a little bit about politics even though this is a non-partisan show but elections will have consequences we we say that all the time and uh there's going to be a shift if you know if trump wins it'll be it'll be a continuation and there'll be an, uh, the policies will maybe be a polished a little bit, uh, second term, legacy building, things like that may happen. But what happens, and let's focus on Central America. Uh, let's keep going with Nicaragua. We'll talk a little bit about Cuban Venezuela, but let's talk about Nicaragua and Central America and immigration and all these. What can happen You know, if Biden wins, if Biden-Harris wins, and we have to revisit Nicaragua policy or we have to talk about, let's say, immigration, and immigration is a big issue in those countries. Give us a little bit of your perspective on that. What, what 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 can completely change or not?
1: Sure. So on on the on Nicaragua, I think like when it comes to the foreign policy component, I don't necessarily envision this major shift in terms of objective. Everybody recognized Daniel Ortega and that regime is suppressing the opposition and they need to address his hijacking and his hijacking of democracy and his criminality. Um, Where I am concerned is a bit further north uh, in Central America's Northern Triangle, Um, which is the largest, rather rather the fastest growing source of illegal immigration to the United States. And just this radical uh, perspective that the Biden camp and has towards the region, particularly on immigration policy and on foreign policy and considering the US's current economic situation, it's just, it seems very unfeasible.
0: Hmm. What about immigration generally? Do you think immigration is gonna be impact, the immigration policy will change? Oh, absolutely. By
1: the Biden's uh, Biden's team has already said that it's going to completely change. So, for Biden right now, has stated that he wants to lift the U.S. refugee cap, for example, to 125,000. So, I'm going to give you a perspective here and just follow me. Right, 125,000 would put the number far higher than when President Obama left office, and that was at 110,000. Mm-hmm. That number was the highest the US ever had in the last almost two decades. Currently, there's 1,200,000 some odd cases uh, through, going through the US immigration court system. The average day a person has to wait for a hearing is about 1,000 some odd days. And so you now are adding in 100 something th- something thousand cases additionally. The US, uh, US immigration officials are still vetting and verifying Uh, applicants for refugee status from war-torn countries, from areas where uh, ISIS foreign fighters have been fleeing, they're still vetting Obama-era applications to this day in 2020. And so Biden has now said that he wants to plus that up. He also wants to dedicate because he thinks the solution to Central America's problems is an additional $5 billion per year to Central America's Northern Triangle. So, Imagine trying to justify this to the American people where we have a double-digit unemployment rate, where Congress is unable to even come together to agree to a stimulus package, and yet we have a leading candidate claiming that they want to give another country $5 billion, and yet this is the region that's the fastest-growing source of illegal immigration to the United States, and now you're also further incentivizing Illegal immigration by claiming that you want to provide further avenues of relief, meaning that they will also be they will also qualify for dozens of other welfare and you free U.S. assistance.
0: You know, when when, taking this back to Miami, uh, this reminds me of a recent case that I was advising uh, some lawyers in Miami. Uh, It was a Cuban dissident and political prisoner who had been expelled from Cuba a few years ago. He went to Trinidad. Trinidad did the Cuba regime's bidding, expelled him again. The poor man ended up in Mexico. Mexico didn't want him. So they kept him in some shanty town and wouldn't give him medical care. And the guy became a stateless person. It's it's, it's a pretty remarkable case. His name is Ramon Adbolayas and uh, there's some information out there in the socials about him. But it's remarkable how this case, the time it took, to by the way, he also has cancer. Uh, he, he, he now only has six months to live and he's in a hospital in Miami. Uh, finally was able to make it in legally uh, through a process that was followed and um, uh, comparing how the vetting was happening 10 years ago to, I'm not an immigration lawyer, but I followed these dissident cases and I collaborate with some immigration lawyers about these cases. And the vetting's taking a lot longer. So the people who have earned their way in, who have followed the process, even when they have a health condition like this one, uh, that they they were able to make it in, uh, it still was hard to get in here. But it's changed so much. You know, when my parents came to this country in the '60s, they fled co- communism. They didn't receive anything. They received a block of cheese, some peanut butter, and you know, go work. And they and they they did that, and they they were just happy to be here, frankly, to be free. The benefit structure that you have today is much more generous than it used to be, and I believe it's not sustainable. Uh, But uh, and once you come here, you qualify for all sorts of aid Uh, that a lot of our parents. I don't know how how your parents got here, but my my parents didn't have any of that. Nope, neither did mine. I I, I don't think that's sustainable. You're right. Throwing that, I had no idea the Biden plan had this five billion dollar tag and. That's that's not that's not that's outside the pale of what I think American taxpayers would 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 accept. And I think um, a good point here is this is why these things impact us. Uh, this is why we we talk about these issues on this podcast. This is why we have this foundation that we deal with these problems as we can in the region. And Anna has shared with you a lot, you know, why it's important to cooperate with Mexico why we have to engage in Venezuela and and with, with the opposition and with groups, even though at times they're not the best cookie cutter wish we had. the. It, it, we just have to stay engaged because it does come back over here to us. So as we wrap this up, Anna, yeah. pick the topic you like, but if someone asks you, hey, why should I care what's happening down in Caracas? Why should I care about what's happening down in Cuba. You know, why should U.S. taxpayers be spending time, money, and, and policy interests in, in, in these types of issues?
1: Because in our communities right now, you know, we still talk about the U.S. opioid crisis, but we still have a cocaine, a massive cocaine crisis right now. And the majority of the U.S.'s cocaine production comes from Colombia. We still have a massive illegal immigration crisis. And where do the majority of U.S. illegal immigrants come from? From the Central America's Northern Triangle. And now they're going to, now the number is rising of illegal immigrants that are coming from Mexico due to the health crisis and the massive economic downturn. We also have to look at where does the majority of the U.S.'s energy come from? Comes from Latin America. It comes That's from the right. hem- It comes from the Western Hemisphere. Right?
0: Say that. Say, say. Say. that again. Where does Where does most of America's energy come from?
1: From the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> That's right. right. We That's have right. this perspective that it comes from the Middle East. Absolutely not. It comes from the Western Hemisphere, and so we we need to. I think this this idea of engagement. It's it's sometimes perceived that this as this like wishy washy sitting down. You know, for crumpets and tea. No, engagement provides you oversight. Engagement allows you to know. What's going on in every single country? So you have full situational awareness to know, is this American business going to be impacted by X thing going on? Right now, what is China? What is China's Huawei planning to do in Brazil that's going to undermine the US military presence down there or the US private sectors uh, expansion in X country? And so engagement is important because of oversight and because of visibility. It allows us to know that the current president of Honduras is an unindicted co-conspirator in his brother's drug trafficking case. We Mm. now know former Minister of Defense is a drug trafficker. And so we just need this awareness, we need this oversight because in the end, we don't want to be caught in a scenario where a situation and a crisis gets so out of control that a conflict gets so bad that we're like, all right, we need to send peacekeepers down there, or we potentially need to send troops and we need to put American lives in danger. We never want that. That's the worst case scenario. And we should never, that should never be the first option. The first option is let's engage, let's have oversight and let's control these dynamics to make sure that they're amenable to our interests, to continue to keep Americans safe and prosperous.
0: You know, she talked about Colombia. She talked about Belt road initiative and I could keep going, uh, but, we, but we're we running out of time. Anna, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us today on a Friday. We recorded this on a Friday, and uh, I hope that you'll consider coming back uh, because we just started to touch upon some pretty important issues. And for those listening, uh, we will provide a lot of background on this. Keep your questions coming. If you have questions for Anna, send them. We'll send them over to her. And if you want to have her back, which I know some of you do want to have her back, Uh, let us know what you want us to talk about. I'm sure she'd be happy to join us.
1: Definitely. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was so much fun and I'm so glad you're hosting this podcast. This is a great initiative.
0: Thanks, Anna. Have a great weekend and we'll see you soon.
1: All right. Talk to you soon.